0: Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis, the Antique Auction Forum. Welcome to episode number one zero two. Couple of announcements: You can listen to us on your smartphone on Stitcher. We have a free app you can download right on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twittercom podcast. We have a Facebook page. You can like us on that. That icon is right on our website. I have to tell you, today's podcast is one of my favorite ones that I've recorded. Uh, a fascinating guest, Robert K. Whitman. He is a retired FBI undercover special agent who founded the Art Crime Team. He's been responsible for recovering $225 million worth of stolen art where he's posed undercover around the world. Fascinating guest. I hope you enjoyed today's program. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. So I have Bob on the line now. How are you doing, Bob?
1: I'm great, Martin. It's great to be here.
0: Yes, thank you. And uh, I was pretty excited when Eric Bradley of Antique Traders gave me your name. I thought this would be perfect for a podcast. Uh, There's a lot of intrigue when it comes to art theft. And uh, I watched a couple of clips. We can talk about that later. You were on uh, the Colbert Report, which was, uh, that was pretty interesting.
1: Uh, he's a great guy. Very, very very smart man. Uh, yes. He works really hard on that show, and uh, it's, it's a great show.
0: And, uh, you know, i got to say, he was kind of easy on you.
1: <laughs> I've seen it well, with a
0: few other people.
1: <laughs> I think he was actually interested in the subject because uh, after it was over, usually he's—they told me he's very quick to get up and go. I mean, he doesn't yeah. hang around at all. And uh, in this situation, you know he uh, actually when we were finished with the uh, with the taping, he actually had, had some more questions and wanted to talk to me about it.
0: Wow, that's that's yeah. pretty cool.
1: Well, wow. so I think he was actually interested in the subject himself. Uh, but it's fun. I mean, when you first go on, uh, and you're sitting in the green room, he comes in to visit with you. And a and show gets taped between somewhere around six thirty and eight thirty in the evening. It's about a two hour taping, and then they, they bust it all down to thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. And he comes in, and he says, uh, "Listen, just first off, he says, I, I just want you to know that uh, this is all, you know, it's all good fun, and please don't take offense at anything." <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then the producers tell you, and then when he leaves, they tell you, "Make sure you just let him do the jokes." <laughs> <laughs> So you know, really a, no a, one-upping, yeah. No one-upping, right. You don't want to get on uh, TV and try to, you know, uh, uh, m- match minds with Stephen Colbert. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. That's right. Yeah. So right off the bat, I want to say most people's opinions are that art thieves are people like Pierce Brosnan, Cary Grant, and there's sort of like a romantic intrigue when it goes to art thieves. What are What are art thieves really like?
1: Well, you know, I call those the Oscar-winning art thieves. You know, they—they are right. They have that opinion that they're—they're uh, they're handsome and debonair and, and you know, rich, and and that they just do this because they dabble in the arts. But the truth is, uh, generally speaking, there's there's three types of people who are involved in art theft, um, and and that's different from the people who are involved in say frauds, forgeries, and fakes. It's a whole different type of concept. But the people who are involved in theft are either general criminals. You know, they have they're involved in many different types of criminal enterprises, including armed robberies, car you know car theft and everything like that as well. And they just happen to do an art heist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have the what I call the experts. Who are people who have access to the to the uh, collections and who go in study collections, and then after a while they either become, you know, emotionally uh, involved with this stuff and decide they're going to take it, or they they have, you know, outlets to sell it. And then you have, uh, and they're also, they include dealers, and then you also have the people who actually work in the museums who are, you know, uh, um, insiders. And uh, generally speaking, for museum theft, we find that about 88 to 90%, when I say we, the FBI statistic, is between 88 and 90% of museum heists have some insider component.
2: Hmm.
0: Wow. Um, and are a lot of the, when you say inside, this is the way you get these statistics, of course, is by uh, cracking the case and. and uh, exactly,
1: by yeah. solving cases, right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm.
0: And what is the percentage of the cases uh, that are solved and the art returned?
1: Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, if we're t- Well, you know, the general um, uh, percentage of, of returned stolen property is somewhere between 5 and 20 percent. Mm -hmm. okay that's for all stolen property we're talking about cars you know tvs anything uh five to twenty percent but when we talk about art heights and these high value paintings uh it's probably 90 to 95 percent like every card and the reason for that is because you know as we know and as your listeners probably uh, would understand art can't be chopped up like a car it's not like Mm -hmm. drugs that can be cut up it's not like a car that can be chopped and sold for parts you know, the art is unique within itself, and if anything happens to that art, the value goes down. So, therefore, you know, anyone who takes a piece has to keep it in good condition and has to sell it, and then it becomes, and when it comes back to markets, when we get it back.
0: Now, does has anyone, in your opinion, has anyone ever stolen art just to admire it?
1: Well, uh, I, I've known individuals who have stolen property, uh, and, and it's not always art. And let me explain one thing about that. Uh, when, when we talk about art theft, uh, we're not just talking about paintings and sculptures. Uh, under the FBI, you know, um, uh, definitions of the art theft and art crime team, it's cultural property theft. It all comes together. So we're talking mm. about pre-Columbian looted artifacts, mm-hmm. material coming from you know the Middle East. Uh, Asian artifacts, all those types of historical pieces, even you know, like i said u s artifacts you know from from u s history, so you know a bill of rights or a sword from the Civil war, all these things are considered parts of the art theft program okay hmm. so uh yeah, do people steal? I have seen people steal who you know wanted to collect items and hmm. and they they enjoy the items and they and they take them for that reason, uh but ultimately, they also want to sell them.
0: Now I, you just mentioned the Bill of Rights. I heard about that. That was returned a few years ago. Is that right?
1: Uh, yeah. It was the uh, the Bill of Rights was recovered in two thousand three.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. And can you tell, explain exactly what happened in that given situation?
1: What happened there was there was, um, uh, well, in 1789 or 1787, one of the other, I I sometimes get confused, George Washington uh, sent 13 copies, uh, had 13 copies actually scribed and sent to the 13 states for ratification of the new Bill of Rights. And uh, uh, most of the states kept them. Uh, One or two returned them back to Washington, but most of the states, you know, ratified them and kept them. Uh, One of the states that kept theirs was North Carolina. Well, it was in Raleigh, in the State House, uh, all the way through up to 1865 during the Civil War. That's right. The Union Trooper uh, actually went to the, uh, the State House. He was, he was coming back north on a march with uh, Sherman's troops after going through Atlanta. And as they went through uh, North Carolina to Raleigh, they captured, uh, the, um, you know, the Capitol and then went in, and this trooper took the Bill of Rights. He actually took it as a souvenir.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And he went back to Indiana with it and uh, sold it for $5. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, it was kept in a family all the way up until 2003 when uh, a couple of appraisers, uh, antiques appraisers, actually found it, uh, bought it from the family and attempted to sell it for $4 million to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia.
0: Wow. I and, bet you they uh, were a little disappointed.
1: <laughs> well, it was you know we identified they they had it, had it identified as well. They had taken it and uh, had it looked at by experts at uh, uh, the George Washington University down in, in Washington D.C. and they had it looked at. Uh, it was the uh, congressional um, uh, their 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 think tank or their um, their, their historical you know. Um, uh, uh, Group that does those types of uh, mm-hmm. uh, authentications. <clears throat> anyway, they had it looked at, and they they were told at the time that it was probably North Carolina's. So they ignored that and just kept going with it. Of course, it was stolen property and belonged to the government in the state of North Carolina. So we uh, we got an arrest Well, actually, we got the seizure warrants from North Carolina and did an undercover operation in Philadelphia where I posed as a philanthropist to buy the piece wow. from the Constitution Center. And when they delivered it, uh, you know, we, we uh, stopped everybody, uh, seized the piece, and were able to return it to, uh, to the Statehouse.
0: Now, where does the statute of limitations play in all this?
1: Well, the normal statute of limitations for stolen property is five years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if someone steals a, an object and takes it uh, after five years, basically you can't charge that person with the theft, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, a, in a standard property crime. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't preclude like federally. I mean, if someone steals a piece of property and, and they take it from, say, you know, uh, Philadelphia and take it to Atlantic City, they cross the state line. Mm-hmm. At that point, that re-ups the statute of limitations, so for another five years. Because what you've done is you've actually committed interstate transportation of stolen property.
0: So, so how does this play in where the state owns? You recovered this piece for the state after you know 150 years.
1: Well, that, that's a, you know, because uh, there's a statute of limitations on the prosecution of someone who has stolen property, that doesn't mean that you can still pass good title on the property. I see. Uh-huh. see I mean, it's like anything else with an artwork. I mean, there's three things that determine, uh, you know, the value and the uh, ability to sell an artwork. And that's that's the, the provenance or the history of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's got to be right, the, the authenticity, again, that's, you know, important. And then having good title. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would I would really impress. That's the that's the touchiest part I think um, nowadays because there's so much litigation going on. So I would really impress on your listeners that you know if they're going to buy artwork, make sure that they do a due diligence research on the title so that they know that they can own it and then continue to own it.
0: Right now, where where does all the Nazi uh, stolen uh, artworks uh, does that does that ever come to play in in any of your investigations?
1: Uh, you know, since I retired from the FBI in 2008, um, I, I can get involved in those cases. Uh, at the time, uh, with the bureau, uh, generally we didn't get involved in those cases because those are not criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, when you're in law enforcement, when you're talking about the local police, state police, or the feds, what, you know these cases have got to be criminal cases that they can look into. And you know that means that the, the round peg has got to fit right into the round hole. You have to be able to yep. prove beyond a reasonable doubt the elements of the specific crime. Uh, I see. And and in those situations, those aren't criminal cases anymore. Those are civil, you know, uh, civil fights. Wow. So, generally speaking, the the government does not get involved in those. Uh, it's 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 between you know private parties. I see. So today, with Robert Whitman Incorporated, you know, my company that I have, I can get involved in those cases and and do the research and due diligence.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about about your company a little later on. What is the number one? St- I don't know how to word this any different, but what's the number one stupidest thing you ever saw a crook do? (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, you know, um, stupid is is one thing. I I, I think one of the number one worst things I ever saw people do uh, was was about 20 years ago. There was a case uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, three individuals went to the Pensbury Manor, which is a historical site. uh... It was the, the summer home of William Penn, the founder of the Pennsylvania Colony,
2: mm-hmm. and he
1: lived there from 1683 to 1700. Wonderful home; it's been you know preserved. Uh, a lot of his material is still there. Well, these three went in, decided they were going to steal you know uh, antiques from the house in order to sell them at an auction. <laughs> well, that's, that's stupid to begin with because you can't. You know, it's identified materials. You, you and I both know you can't sell it. But what they did was they got scared after there was so much press about the burglary, and it was on the front pages of the newspapers, all in the area, that they took the material and they threw it into the Delaware River. Oh, okay, in order to hide it and get rid of it. Oh, and okay. we're talking about, yeah, material 300 years old, owned by the family. and uh, there' were about 37 or 38 pieces that were taken. Uh, of those pieces. we recovered 32 at the bottom of the river, but we oh. lost. We lost all the wooden pieces. And can you imagine, Martin, these pieces from had survived three centuries and they ended up, you know, going into the river and going away because just because of, as like you say, the stupidity.
0: That's know, of, that's an atrocity. Now, I, I was doing a lot of work in a major art artist estate, Walt Kuhn, um, hmm. his family in uh, Cape Natic, uh Maine. Years ago, um, a bunch of uh, bikers stole. About 30 of the clown paintings, which sell up to a million dollars, and when they were being sought after, they stacked them in a pile and lit them on fire. Oh, boy. You yeah. know, and I, it is an atrocity because these things are, you know, when they're gone, they're gone forever, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's, it's Especially terrible.
1: Especially the, if the artist is passed or, or whatever, and then they can't be replaced, you know, and they can't ever be done again. You're right. And this material was, was cultural property. I mean, this was our, the history of our country.
0: Yeah, I like I like that phrase, cultural property. It, it, it Just that one phrase kind of encapsulates what exactly it is. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like like history is gone, you know. And right.
1: And, his, and these pieces belong to all of us, not just one museum or one you know, historic home. They belong to everyone. That's right. we all lose. You know, there's something I, I really felt bad about that at the time, and I always feel bad when I see that happen because... I kind of look at it this way, and you probably might feel the same way. Is that you know we're all here together. When I say we all, everyone who's alive today, okay, mm-hmm. uh, none of us are going to get out of this alive. <laughs> okay? That's right. Yeah. In the end, so it's our time and it's our responsibility to protect this material for our children and their grandchildren. You know, mm-hmm. and, and if we don't, you know, our, our forefathers and whatnot have kept it for us. They've been successful. And when something like this happens, you know, when we lose a piece like that, that's a failure for all of us. We all carry the blame for that because, you know, the future generations will not be able to, you know, enjoy, learn from, and, you know, inherit uh, this material that we lose.
0: That's right. And this is going to roll me right into the next uh, part is I did a podcast, podcast number 31, with Ulrich Bosser about the Gardner heist and the Isabel Stewart Gardner House case and that kind of uh, exemplifies what we're talking about here, those empty frames that are hanging in there where the Rembrandt was and uh, all those wonderful paintings that are gone. Uh, first of all, do you know Ulrich by chance?
1: Ulrich? Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a reporter from out of Washington, D.C. In fact, I think I had a, there was a whole chapter in his book about me.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I read the book too, but it was quite a while ago. It's a oh, great yeah. great book. And uh has there has there been any breakthrough at all that you're aware of on that on that case? Uh at
1: this point, I have not heard of anything new since I conducted an investigation from 2006 to 2008. Um, I was undercover in uh Madrid, Paris, uh Marseille, and and Miami chasing the uh Rembrandt uh, uh Storm over the Sea of Galilee and the Vermeer mm-hmm. concert. Uh, From that collection.
0: Wow, wow. When you say when you say undercover, can you explain exactly what do you pose as a prominent art buyer or something? How does that work?
1: Well, for for 20 years, from 1988 to 2008, um, I was undercover somewhere in the world, uh, working as a as sometimes a prominent art buyer, sometimes an authenticator for the mob, or other times as a professor. You know, looking at art, or sometimes it's just a, a, a buyer who had absolutely no knowledge, but it was an easy time mark. So it depended on what the situation was. But at that time, I was undercover as an uh, art buyer who was, uh, you know, who had clients around the world who were interested in buying those specific kind of paintings. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we we got within, I think, a few weeks of almost, almost recovering those two paintings. Oh. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. Yeah. And I, I document that in my, my book, Priceless.
0: Oh, yes. And uh, by the way, I'm going to have a link to that book up right underneath this podcast. So anyone who's listening to this can go to my website and you'll see under this podcast a link to bring you directly to that book. That came out in, what, 2010?
1: Yes. Yeah, so it, it was actually uh, published by Random House on uh, June 1st, 2010. It was uh, It's a national uh, bestseller, New York Times bestseller. And in it, I talk about maybe around 15 different cases I was involved with when, in, with around the world and um, talk about recoveries and the undercover operations that went into them.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, do you actually ever have, I know this is going to sound kind of corny, but do you ever have like a briefcase full of cash?
1: Have I ever had a briefcase full of cash?
0: Yeah. Sure. <laughs> wow. I mean, yeah. that... That's like the I ultimate had, uh, undercover, right there. Is you have I a, one, yeah. one
1: case I talk about in the book where we recovered a thirty-five million dollar Rembrandt that was stolen at gunpoint from the Swedish National Museum in Stockholm. And uh, after about a two week, in, yeah, two week, uh, a weeks worth of meetings, uh, we negotiated a deal to, to buy the painting back for two hundred and fifty thousand. Mm. And I had uh, I had, had all hundred dollar bills in my briefcase.
0: Wow, has your life been threatened while while you've been uh, cracking any of these cases?
1: Well, the, uh, you know, anytime you work in law enforcement and, you know, you're, you're dealing with people who are, you know, in these cases, armed robbers, and in, in that Swedish case those individuals went into the museum with machine guns and, and basically stole three paintings uh, at gunpoint. Wow. And that happened many times. Uh, you know, whenever you're dealing with those people, you always have to, you know, keep your wits about you and, and uh, you know, be ready for whatever comes along. Uh, I remember one, one occasion we had just recovered two Picassos that had been stolen from uh, uh, the Picasso family in Paris. And um, uh, when we did the operation, uh, these individuals were were meeting with one of my quote uh, buyers to, uh, to to sell the paintings, and then they were arrested by the French police. Well, the people who were involved didn't weren't too happy about it and said they wanted to kill me. So we had a meeting in Miami, and uh, in that particular case, I had a gun in each pocket.
0: Oh my God! Wow. Now, when you say from Picasso's family, was that the case where it was his granddaughter? Indeed. Yep. And was that was that stolen from her by gunpoint?
1: Uh, no, that was stolen out of her apartment. She was, uh, she was away. Uh, the individual, what he had done was he had actually gotten a, uh, gotten in a year earlier, doing some work in the apartment, and he made a key. Oh. but He waited a year for her to not be there for, for a good time to go in, and he stole the two paintings.
0: Wow. So I was recently speaking to a curator at a museum, which will remain unnamed, and he told me that his museum and a number of museums are not insured because they can't afford it. Is, and they also spend their money instead on beefing up security, fire prevention, things like that. What's what's the scoop on that? What's
1: the scoop? I I, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know. Um,
0: have you have you that, heard this before?
1: Uh, I I think that uh, that's possible. I think it's irresponsible. I think that um, uh, having insurance is is something that every uh, you know a, any collector or any collection of material should be insured. And and you know you don't have to insure the entire museum. You don't have to insure every piece of the museum. What you do is you have a basis, all right. I mean maybe it's a a five million dollar policy, and it's not that expensive, okay. I mean it, you can you can get something like that, you get a five million dollar policy or a one, whatever it is, one million dollar policy, but with the idea that not everything in your museum is going to be stolen or destroyed at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes in and steals, you know, two paintings and they're worth whatever they are, at least you have that basis to work with to make that insurance company your partner in the investigation and try to recover it. So you don't have to have, you know, a, a billion dollars worth of insurance. You just need enough to make the insurance company your partner to recover the material.
0: I see. And, so, and they work with uh, your new business that you have now, an insurance company will work with you on something like that.
1: To recover. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah. do investigations uh, for insurance companies. The um, you know, latest one we did was just a couple of months ago. We were down in uh, Houston. A, uh, a woman was in her home, and there was a home invasion robbery where a man went in with a gun, basically stole a uh, Renoir right off the wall. Didn't know what it was. She, he oh. called that lady. jeez. <laughs> oh, but he was doing a home invasion robbery, and uh, we got a call right away from the insurance company, went down and conducted the investigation. At this point, we have not recovered it, but uh, we're, we're working on it.
0: Wow. Wow, that's great. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your business. It's You're located in Pennsylvania, but you travel... <laughs> Do you still travel worldwide?
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, we yeah. Are, uh, in the last two years. We've been to Paris, uh, uh, you know, Madrid, uh, Barcelona again, Genoa, Italy. Uh, working in London, um, Romania, chasing chasing these paintings.
0: Is there any place in the world where more theft happens than other
1: areas? You know, I, I think that uh, well, it depends on the type of theft that you're talking about, and it depends on the uh, the material. I mean, of course, if you talk about looted artifacts, you know, those are coming from the source countries, mm-hmm. and so you know that that's a type of theft that that occurs uh, quite often. And then you talk about paintings and that type of thing. There seems to be a lot of uh, theft in Western Europe today, and uh, and the reason for that is because I think that the quality of security in a lot of the museums is a bit lacking. And it's not because they don't want it. It's because of the economic times and the fact that, uh, you know, it's very expensive. And, and usually that, what happens is, uh, you know, security is one of the first things that people start to cut.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the reason for that is because it's on the, the, quote, the wrong side of the ledger sheet. It doesn't bring money in, supposedly. It costs money, you know. Mm. So what obviously you might do is, you know, say we have 14 guards and, you know, maybe we can make do with 10. Well, what that does is it lowers lowers your your security profile, which makes you more apt to be a victim. And I there's see. nothing more, you know, you can something that just is so uh, obvious. Uh, a few weeks ago, in in Greece, at the Olympia Museum, you know, they had cut the security uh, group to nothing. There was just one woman in the museum, so a couple of guys went in, they tied her up, and stole I think mean, more than 40 items. Wow! But uh, just at gunpoint because they could.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do more thefts occur in museums and in private situations?
1: Uh, I think it's probably more, uh, you know, I think the biggest amount of thefts are not from museums, because museums do have a certain amount of security. The biggest amount of thefts are from burglaries or private homes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and a lot of that is not artwork, okay? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not nearly what, you know, what we think it is. It's not artwork. But, no, I think that uh, private homes probably get the vast majority
0: of, of thefts out there. Now, in the business that you have now, do you also give people security ideas as far as protecting their valuables? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. We do a collection security site facility management uh, survey, and mm-hmm. what we'll do is we'll go in, we'll look at the security, the layers of security, whether they have uh, per- perimeter penetration, electronic, and then, you know, human and, and we'll make sure that uh, things are done as far as best practices are concerned in all those types of situations. Um, also, we do collection management if uh, individuals don't know what they have or want to know what they have. Or, you know, people inherit things and they, they don't realize they get these collections and they don't know what's in them. You know, we'll go in and do that. Uh, also do object ID for them as far as identification is concerned and create databases. So, yeah, we do all that plus due diligence for provenance research as far as background material, and do uh and we'll also do theft mitigation reports, which uh, you know if you want to sell something you want to know to make sure it's not listed stolen anywhere, we can do a report for you on that as well so we're we're involved in many different parts. The only thing we don't do is appraisal.
0: uh-huh that sounds like you know i mean i've uh, I've done a lot of research on provenance and things, and that's that's intense research sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, of course, the higher profile piece, the easier it usually is. But uh, when you get something that's still valuable, that's uh, sort of obscure, sometimes uh, you can't get too far as far as provenance goes.
1: Right, right. Well, what we what we try to do is this. I mean, I, I'll get I'll get somebody like you to do the back the the ultimate background. Mm-hmm. But then what we'll do is we'll we'll check all the sources uh, that are you know supposedly where it came from. In other words, you know, we'll ask all the tough questions. You know, did you really get this? We'll go. We'll go. You know, um, pin it down.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and what I
1: mean is, it's not so much the provenance as far as you know where it was in 1860, as much as today. If you bought it from this place, then we're going to go find that place and we're going to take a picture of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're gonna look it up in the you know in the uh, in the files of the of the city, or the county, or the state to see who was there and renting what, and get all the background reports. And then we'll go talk to everybody who was there. So mm-hmm. it, it's actually an investigation, you know, into. Uh, where it came from and how far back
2: we can go. You mm-hmm.
0: know, I was just at an auction two weeks ago, and there was a painting that a a person bought at a thrift store in Florida for three dollars. I'm not exaggerating, and it just sold for two hundred thirty thousand um, dollars. Yeah, and uh, when you get a situation like that, and and uh, you kind of hit a, a brick wall, don't you? You know. Well.
1: If you, uh, my first thought would be, where did you get it? Where did the thrift store get it? Yeah. You know, I mean, where did they buy it from? Or well, where did they get it? Was it donated? Who donated? Do they have any records? Mm-hmm. And if they don't, well, I mean, you can only take it as far back as you can. You That's know? right. Yeah. And what I would do then is I I do a theft report, uh, a theft mitigation report to see if it's listed as stolen anywhere.
2: <laughs> ah. Uh huh.
1: Uh huh. What's it doing in a thrift shop for three dollars?
0: Yeah. Exactly. That does seem to happen where the family loses touch of what the values are of things, you know, that can happen.
1: That could happen. But that, you know something, though, Martin, that's something that, that bothers me. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something about this because okay. of, and you can use it or not use it, but here it is. You know, today's world, and we watch television, okay, and it's all these proliferation of television shows like American Pickers and Pawn Shop or Pawn Star, whatever it's called, or, <laughs> you know, all these different shows. And the whole background, the whole idea of the show is to buy low and sell high, mm-hmm. and it's all about how much money you could have made you make off of somebody, you know, yeah. and because, quote, you have more knowledge than they have. Mm-hmm. Well, what that does, I think it creates a, a, a feeling or, you know, a, a, an idea that this is okay to rip people off. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah, it's great if you can go to a thrift shop and you have the knowledge to buy something for $3 and sell it for a lot of money. That's great. But when you walk into someone's home and you say, Okay, I'm gonna buy this from you for ten dollars because that's all it's worth, and you go out and sell it for five hundred, well, you know, you have an obligation, I think, ethically, mm-hmm. to do it right. You know, there's no reason why you can't make a twenty percent or a twenty five percent profit, but you know, have it be a, a decent profit. You know, there's nothing wrong with bulls, there's nothing wrong with bears, but don't be a pig. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? No, I'm definitely keeping this in because I agree with you hundred percent and it's you know, uh, of course, if you if you buy it innocently, you know one of the the biggest finds I ever had. I didn't know what I was buying, and uh, you know I bought it in a situation where it was an open market. It was a uh, an estate sale and open to everyone, and I had no idea what the thing is. I thought it was great, and you know I was I was uh, 18 years old, and uh, made made a lot of money. And in that case, I think it you know was innocent, but uh, there are.
1: Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these, these you know, these like these people, like on these shows. You know, they're they're being aggrandized for ripping people off. Yeah. You know, and, and in the end, it's not you know a, a profit plus six hundred dollars. You know, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And that to me is wrong. I mean, I just think that that's you know the wrong way of doing business, and I think that sends out the wrong message. You
0: know. Well, uh, a little insight to that is. Uh, American Pickers got a flood of letters, had to do with a cash register, I believe, that was bought for really a low amount of money and sold for a pretty good pro, too much of a profit, and they mm-hmm. got a flood of letters, so they had to change the format slightly of the show and show less profit. <laughs>
1: less profit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's all treasure hunting. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and uh, and it's okay. I think treasure hunting is great. I think it's neat to do that. But there's another show coming out now called American Diggers, and and, and what they show is you see this uh, this was old time wrestler or something, who goes out and digs <laughs> digs stuff up out of the ground, and then sells it for these huge profits or something. And, again, I think that sends out the wrong message because I hope your listeners realize that it's illegal to do that, you know, on federal property, on battlefields, you know, in in, uh, uh, Indian uh, uh, burial sites. That's looting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's not legal. It's it's against the archaeological resource preservation. These are federal crimes. So I think that uh, a show that, you know, again, that aggrandizes that and says how great it is, yeah, you know, they really need to let people know that's not you know it's not a good idea unless you know where you're going, you know, and what you're
0: right. doing. Now, I heard of a case uh, you just mentioned, Indian burial ground. I just heard of something a while back that came up about this. Is is that what you're alluding to, basically?
1: Well, there's many cases. I mean, I did a I did a case in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in, in involving about four hundred thousand dollars worth of material that was being offered for sale against the uh, North American Graves uh, Repatriation Act, which is basically protection of you know tribal material. And these individuals were selling this material for you know this is sacred material coming came out, came, and came out of the Kivas and the Pueblos and whatnot, and were selling it to collectors and dealers, and it's all illegal stuff. I mean, you can't sell that material. It's it's owned by the tribes, you know. Uh, so, uh, there's a lot of cases involving that material.
0: Hmm. Wow. And I know in Mexico, for one thing, there's a lot of the, the shaft tomb, uh, see pre Columbian burial figures that uh, they're on the open market all over the place. But that's uh, that doesn't seem to be illegal. No, it is. <laughs> you it
1: can't, is It's illegal. It to the U.S.
0: And, but uh, there's but, so many pieces here. <laughs> it's no, the, well,
1: the pieces that are already here are illegal. Yeah. Are but now you know we have a treaty with Mexico, which does not allow the importation of those materials.
0: Mm. And a lot of those were dug up from farmers, and they would sell them yeah. from whatever. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Well, you know that's the thing. I would, uh, and for your listeners who are into you know collections of antiquities, you know that's something that you really have to be aware of, because uh, every year the United States signs new memorandums of understanding. With different countries I think there's 13 or 14 now that you cannot import material from those countries so mm-hmm. you know you have to be careful with and, and know what you're doing before you uh, uh, get involved I think they just signed a, another treaty in December with Greece involving uh, uh, ancient coins so
0: really Wow yeah. so now can uh, you can you name a number uh, a few other countries that this is already oh, in sure. place sure uh, yeah.
1: Thailand uh, I believe Thailand uh, uh, Guatemala Peru um, They're looking at China and and, and adding China to it. I don't think they've done that quite yet, but I think they're looking at it. uh, Greece, uh, Italy, uh, all those countries. You know, all all those are source countries where this material is
0: is banned. I would imagine Egypt. Egypt, yep. Yep. So, you know,
1: you have to be careful.
0: Right, right. Uh, Sliding back to what we were talking about earlier, the thieves. You know how you you watch... in the movies, they always have all this high-tech stuff, and somehow they have all the money to have all this high-tech stuff, um, you know, to steal the diamond out of the museum and stuff like that. Have you ever seen a case where someone actually used any high-tech stuff?
1: Uh, there was one case a number of years ago uh, in Vienna where an individual went into the, uh, the, the state museum and stole a, a golden um, uh, statue called the, the Salt Cellar by Cellini. And that individual did have information about how to cut, the, or he was an alarm specialist. So he did have a way of, of silencing the alarm uh, when he went in and he wasn't detected. Uh, but other than that, usually it's just an armed robbery or it's a shoplifting. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think one of the most high-tech uh, pieces I've seen in recent years was an exacto knife <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, that one map dealer was using to cut maps out of the uh, uh, rare book library at the Beinecke Library in Yale. So, I mean, um, usually it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty low-tech stuff.
0: Well, you know, I, I did an appraisal years ago. I think you'd find this interesting because uh, I did an appraisal that a woman had a mansion in Pennsylvania that basically burned to the ground, and it was an early mansion. And in it, she had a, uh, one of the well-known Gilbert Stewart paintings of uh, George Washington. And uh, she said, yes, we lost that. And I was in her basement doing an appraisal, and I saw this frame. I asked her what the frame was because it was an amazing frame, very large one. And, and she said, well, that's where the Gilbert Stewart was in. And I looked at it, and uh, the there was razor cut around the stretcher and uh, smoke on the uh, jagged edge of the canvas. And I said, you know what? Someone cut this painting out of the frame before the house burned down. Mm-hmm. And the woman started crying. I mean, she had no idea I just can't imagine how that could happen. Have you ever heard of a situation like that?
1: Uh, no, but did they find it?
0: Uh, she's never.
1: Uh,
0: I was in touch with her a little while after this appraisal and asked, you know, what she did about this. But as far as I know, uh, I don't know anything's ever happened.
1: I would think that that'd be pretty easy to find. I mean, if it's out there. Um, you know, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was or whatever, but, I mean, uh, it should be reported so it could be a- added into the databases so that, you know, if it does come up for auction, or it does come up for sale, we, could, we can get a, a read on it, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I want to speak about auction. Do you have a lot of situations where you've actually had to go to an auction of an upcoming article that was to be auctioned and, and confiscate it?
1: Uh, yeah, well, with the, with the bureau, with the FBI, uh, on a number of occasions, we stopped at auctions and and recovered material. I could think of probably three different occasions where we did that. Sure, mm-hmm. and that happens all the time in New York as well with uh, Christie's and Sotheby's. Whenever there's these antiquities auctions and whatnot, and not, not, when I say all the time, I don't mean all. Maybe once or twice a year, where you know countries will make a claim on something. And then, and then what happens is, you know, once the claim is made, then the auction, I mean, the auction of that specific item might be, it might be held up, you know, or Mm -hmm. or done until, until it's been, you know, identified and adjudicated. But the auction continues. It's just the one item comes off.
0: Yes. I had a situation where I had a really nice weather vane Mm. uh, that was advertised everywhere. (laughs) And uh, the same thing happened. It was a stolen weather vane. I had no idea. And the person that owned it had no idea. He bought it at, Mm. um. At a, a large uh, fair, you know, antique fair.
1: Right, right. Did he get
0: his money back? I don't know how that ever panned out, but yeah. uh, he, he probably, spent some money on it, too.
1: I would tell your listeners, I mean, you know, if you're going to buy material that's you know, that has any kind of uh, substantial value, you need to get good good provenance and good history on it. And also make sure that the person you're buying it from is legitimate and get their mm-hmm. information, get their driver's license, get their name and numbers, because you never know, uh, you know, what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's good advice. Are there ever high-profile thefts that are just kept out of the news?
1: Uh, well, you know, I think that sometimes museums have this mistaken idea that they should not report, uh, and, and I think that's uh, that's an older idea. Back in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, and and before, you know, museums were loath to report missing items because they thought that that would affect you know uh, future uh, donations to the museum and that type of thing, and it would be bad publicity. But I think today there's a whole sea change of ideas in that and the fact is you know if you don't report that you can't you can't get it back number one mm. so it goes away secondly you're inviting the criminal to come back and do it again All right. okay to get away Absolutely. with it and thirdly uh... you know as far as due diligence is concerned the people who are in charge of the museum or in charge of the historic house or whatever may have some uh... liability issues because they're not you know they're not they're not withholding their duties and doing it correctly so you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it nowadays. I think most of the times, most of these high high-profile pieces do get reported.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, do you yourself go into museums and and look at pieces and think, uh, well, this could be taken this way, this could be stolen that way?
1: Uh, no, I never think of how pieces can be stolen. I always think about how pieces can be better secured. Ah, mm-hmm. so I mean, it's a uh, it's a different thought process. Uh, it's more of you know I wish this had a better you know a better hanger system, or I wish these these bolts were this was bolted you know to the to the to the wall, or you know maybe that piece shouldn't be close, so close to the door.
0: But you know I always think about how uh, you know they can strengthen security. Mm-hmm. Well, they must train you through the FBI how to think like a criminal or, or well, how you know, a criminal thinks, I should say.
1: Well, you have to understand you know when we talk about art theft and and uh, art crime, it's not about art history, it's about the art business. Mm-hmm. So you know, having a, a business background in the auction galleries or in the art world is is very helpful. So it's it's all about how to make a deal in in the art world.
0: Now, did you have any background with that at all? Yeah, my
1: parents were in the antiques business. Oh wow! So I kind of grew up in it uh, to a certain degree. I was actually working with my father in uh, you know, he in an Asian antique shop on Howard Street in Baltimore, which was uh, you know the the antique row of the city. So he uh, he always had a desire and, and always loved Asian antiques and so he started a business up and, and for a few years I would uh, go out and help him on Saturdays and whatnot and and uh, you know you learn how to make a deal uh, in the mm-hmm. art world. Mm-hmm.
0: And that uh, by the way that uh, I'm sure you're probably aware of this but the Asian market is uh, strong as can be right now as oh, far yeah, as Chinese goes. Yeah, it's
1: really it's really uh, it's been booming, hasn't it? It sure yeah. has.
0: Yeah. One last uh, we're about out of time here and I feel like I could talk to you all day. <laughs> But uh, you mentioned earlier that about somewhere around ten percent of the items are not recovered or never resurfaced. What what would you have to guess if you had to happens to those items?
1: Uh, I think they're destroyed.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we do lose pieces. I mean, I, I told you those pieces that were stolen from the uh, Pensbury Manor were destroyed. Uh, I think pain sometimes you know over over years are not properly cared for, it, or when they 're cut out of frames, I think sometimes it does a lot of damage and um, sometimes they 're not transported correctly, so I think that 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 is our percentage of loss
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and now that doesn 't mean to say that we 're never going to get them back. It means it also means that sometimes they 're stored away and uh, they haven 't you know they haven 't surfaced at this point so it takes sometimes it takes a whole generation you know before they come back,
0: yeah, when eBay first began. Around 1997, 1998, somewhere around there, I bought a painting, and I was actually contacted by the FBI because the person that sold the painting, um, I guess, uh, had sold some fraudulent paintings. Does the art crime team keep an eye on eBay and other online resale?
1: Uh, I don't think they keep an eye on it as much as they, you know, they take complaints from it. In other words, if uh, someone, I don't, I don't think it's a proactive situation where they're actually looking at it every day. What happens is, though, if someone makes a complaint off of it, mm-hmm. yeah, they'll they'll look at that and take that seriously. You know, the biggest um, complaints that come into the Cybercrime Center are eBay fraud. So that's the biggest number of, of complaints. And it's not because there's anything wrong with eBay. It's just some of the material that goes on there is not, not correct. Yeah. Uh, One thing I want to talk about too, uh, quickly, if you don't mind, is uh, I'm offering an art crime investigation seminar that I uh, do each year, and this year is going to be from June 10th to June 15th in Philadelphia. And at that seminar, it's a five-day seminar where uh, you know uh, participants will be be uh, will participate in the lectures uh, from the top uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, prosecutors, as well as civil you know attorneys as well as learn about the fine art industry and different uh, different aspects of the industry. Um, and as far as, you know, careers are concerned, it's a great opportunity to, to kind of flesh out what people are interested in.
0: Wow, that's great. And is that on your website? In uh, yes, it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's great. Your website will be linked under this podcast as well, so anyone listening can go to that. That sounds like something I'd like to go to, just to sit and... Listen, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, this is uh, this has been really fascinating. All
1: right, listen, Martin, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on your show, and uh, uh best of luck to you.
0: So, this is Martin Willis with Bob Whitman. Boy, try it again. This is Martin Willis with Bob Whitman of Whitman. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah.
1: so this is Martin Willis with Bob Whitman of Robert Whitman
0: Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got to keep that in, and we're signed. <laughs> And we're signing off. Thank you.